Welcome to the Advancing Women Podcast, where ambitious women come together to challenge the status quo, advance their careers, and up-level their lives. The Advancing Women Podcast is hosted by gender equity expert and executive coach, Dr. Kimberly D. Simone. Welcome, warriors, to the Advancing Women Podcast. Too often, women's success is attributed to luck and not hard work and ambition. And even worse, if women are acknowledged for their ambition, it can be seen as aggressive. It's like ambitious men are meant to be celebrated, while ambitious women too often are criticized and experience backlash, real professional consequences when we are seen as ambitious. The research shows that successful women, especially those in traditionally male-dominated roles, often experience interpersonal penalties not sustained by similarly successful male counterparts. Women who are successful in these male domains are often disliked, even when they behave no differently than their male counterparts and in ways that are advised in the best practice advice often given to women to get ahead. And this can have a detrimental impact on women's advancement and their long-term financial outlook. So it is an important topic that we have to be talking about more. And to that end, I am so delighted to have nationally recognized money expert Stephanie O'Connell Rodriguez on the Advancing Women podcast today. Stephanie is a writer who covers money, power, and ambition. Her work and advice have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, CNBC, USA Today, and more. A go-to expert, Stephanie has appeared on ABC World News, CBSN, Fox Business, Bloomberg, The Dr. Oz Show, The Doctors, and local television stations across the country. Stephanie is the host of Real Simple Magazine's Money Confidential podcast, named one of Spotify's best new shows of 2021. And I have to mention the op-ed piece you did in Bloomberg titled, Stop Punishing Women for Being Ambitious, where you start the article saying, quote, women are told to always negotiate and speak up more to close gender gaps. But when they do, they face consequences, end quote. That really struck me, Stephanie, and I thought, I've got to get her on this podcast. Welcome, Stephanie, to the Advancing Women podcast. I'm so delighted to have you here, and I can't wait to hear more about the ambition penalty. Well, that was really a hype up, and I appreciate that because uh, sometimes I'm like, oh, I hope everything I'm saying makes sense. And It does, and you <laughs> are an ambitious woman, and I am celebrating your ambition on this podcast here. Oh, there are no ambition penalties at the Advancing I Women. I love it, and I love people who feel the same. That's, that's really what I'm trying to do is connect us to each other, right? Build community with each other instead of in this world in which there's so much backlash for doing these very things. Absolutely. It really resonated when I heard the ambition penalty. It's almost like giving name to something that we have felt for so long and saying, yes, yes, that is it. That's exactly it. Yeah. Well, you know, the research, there's all these different words, right? There's backlash effect, like ability trap and the double bind, right? When women behave in these ways that they're told to behave, to succeed, there is this backlash. There is things that happen, like being denied for the the raises you ask for or being having a job offer rescinded, which is like way more common than I realized <laughs> since yeah, I started reporting I on this. <laughs> I've heard your work and it's, you know, we always hear, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? Just yeah. ask. The worst they can do is say no. And I love how you're like, no, that's not even close to the worst that can happen. Yeah. And I, a lot of this has come for me through reporting. I've always 
been the person giving the advice, especially around negotiation. And some of it is true and it's familiar. And it's not that the advice is necessarily bad about asking for more and speaking up and advocating for yourself. I'm not anti any of those things. But what I've realized is that I've given that advice for so long and in the echo chamber that has been feminism for the last 10 years of this very simplistic message of leaning in um, without really thinking about the other side of the equation. So what happens when you come to the negotiation table with that kind of energy, when you are in a sexist, inherently flawed and biased work environment that we're all operating in, somebody might not receive that in the empowering way you've intended. And again, my message is not that we shouldn't do it. My message is let's be aware of these biases so that when somebody does react to our negotiation in a way that they find that that they feel compelled to overlook you or, or rescind your job offer, you don't internalize it personally. You don't think it's something wrong with you or what you did but you understand that that's a system and flaw and bias in the workplace so that you don't have this outcome where you're like, well, I guess I shouldn't have done that. I guess I wasn't qualified enough to advance because to your point, that's what somebody said to me after her job offer was rescinded following a negotiation. She's like, you know, they always said the worst they could say is no, but the worst they could do is gaslight you, demean you, make you think you are not worthy or don't have the skills and experience you do. And that can stay with you for decades, for the rest of your career. Okay, there's so much you just talked about here. I don't even know where to begin. But first, I want to say that the mantra of the Advancing Women podcast is it's where empathy meets pragmatism. And I always say it's not your fault, but it is your problem. Yeah. And I think it's about eyes wide open, right? It's not about complaining about the problems or saying that we don't have to address them. It's saying it's not your fault. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to own or carry the weight of the blame and the inequity on your shoulders. You know, we have this kind of fix the women, fix the problem mentality as though we can mentor, sponsor, workshop, and coach women out of equitable circumstances in their environment. And it's just not practical. And you mentioned earlier, it doesn't always land the same. When we behave and say and do and negotiate exactly the same ways that the best practice advice tells us we should, it just does not land the same. And not knowing it or not accepting it doesn't make it not true. So we can stick our head in the sand and say, well, you know, it's a fair world and there's meritocracy and everything's equitable because otherwise I just can't look at the other side of that, right? I get it. We don't want to believe that we're so far behind the eight ball, but it doesn't serve us to not come in with eyes wide open and really understand the realities, the problems, the barriers, the stereotypes, the prescriptive and descriptive biases of how women should be and how women are and how that relates to their success in the workplace. And that's kind of why I wrote this op-ed you were referencing. And I tried to have a catch-all term, which I've, I've just been using the ambition penalty to kind of encompass all of these things. Oh, I'm using it all the time. I can't stop using it now that that I heard ambition penalty. I'm like, yep, that's what I'm using all the time. Well, I have always found it to be very constructive to have a 
thing I can name. And I think what's really tricky about the way bias and discrimination shows up, especially in the workplace these days, is it's something we feel a lot, but it's very hard to be like, oh, it's this. Like I can point to it. It's tangible because it's it's rarely explicit. It's all of these very <laughs> implicit things. And it's like, ah, I I know this is happening to me, but, you know, I don't have language for it. And as I've been sharing these stories and as I've been using these phrases, it's wild how many messages I've gotten being like, I have felt this. This has happened to me. I never was able to really express what it was. And now that I have, I feel like I can share it. I feel like I can talk about it. And I feel like that's so important. Yeah, it legitimizes the very real lived experience of women in the workforce. And I am going to actually quote from that Bloomberg article. because It's so succinct where you said, quote, the problem with this messaging is it implies that a woman's primary obstacle to economic power is herself and that inequities in pay and wealth result from our own behavior. There's no acknowledgement of how women are often penalized for pursuing their ambitions, end quote. And I think there's something so powerful about that. And it's not victim mentality saying, I am coming in with eyes wide open and it allows me to have a different kind of a mindset, a different set of strategies and tactics that help me to come in to the situation in a way that is not just what the best practice advice tells you, but with the understanding of the full complexity of the problem. I think that, yeah, a hundred percent. But then I will also say, you know, one of my peeves as somebody who's been covering finance for a long time is how much of the messaging around inequity, gender, racial, you know, any number of metrics is attributed to these like somehow inherent things, right? Ah, if women were just more confident, if they were just more aggressive, if they were just more this, there wouldn't be this issue. And basically all of that is just totally not true. It's totally not true. Not only is it this gaslighting and this internalizing for for women themselves who are trying to advocate for themselves, but it's also just a very convenient excuse to let the existing issues stand instead of being like, actually, no, women are confident. They are perfectly competent. And you can't use that excuse as a scapegoat for why you're not paying as much or why you're not advancing them. And we've seen this over and over again. Yeah, such an important point. Companies will have diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives or gender initiatives to help women advance. And then it's almost like they punch as pilot their way out of any accountability and they're no longer culpable. And I think it's such a dishonest kind of inequity. I hate to say this, but sometimes I miss good old fashioned gender bias where they told you point blank, you know what, you're a woman, you're not going to get ahead. Now, you know, I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, but at the same time, at least you didn't have to say, well, that's me. I've done research that shows that when women are told, look at all of the ways that we as an organization have made it possible for you to advance and they do all the things and then they don't advance, they're left with what? A self-imposed argument well, it must be me. And I think that sometimes to your point, when you talk about gaslighting is even more dangerous. This is second generation gender bias and it's sneakier, right? It's harder to see. That's exactly what I'm talking about. It's not this explicit thing where people are like, oh, we're just not going to have women in leadership. We're just not going to have uh, opportunities for women. Uh, No, it's this sneaky, not explicit, but equally pervasive and in that way is potentially even more destructive bias. And 
yeah, I think the reason it's so painful is because everybody can claim these other things uh, or, or point to something else that's not even true. But when you're the person it's happening to, you're just like, maybe it is me. Maybe I wasn't good enough or maybe I wasn't doing all the right things. And I think to your point, the ongoing kind of trauma of that experience also shouldn't be discounted because it's a lot of the women I spoke to um, about their experiences were in their early to mid twenties. And I was like, think of now the weight of that experience that that woman is now carrying with her into her future work for the rest of her career. And that sucks. Well, you said you need to have more confidence and negotiate. And then when you negotiated and had more confidence, there was backlash. And now you actually have less confidence. Exactly. You exerted your confidence, which is so filled with irony. Um, I I like that you brought up women in their 20s and how women who exert influence or exert their power, especially in traditionally male-dominated domains, really feel that backlash bubble up. And you said in your 30s, you began to feel like your ambition started to feel unacceptable. (laughs) And I felt this too. I have felt like it's off-putting or somehow seen as at the expense of others, you know, this win-lose paradigm. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So- we were talking about terminology before and the two terms I've really been kind of coalescing around is ambition penalty, as we talked about. And then there's this other one that I haven't written an op-ed about or anything yet, but it's in progress. And I call it the empowerment cliff. And what is really interesting is I am a child of the eighties, which means that in the nineties, I was like, one of the first take your daughter to work day kids, right? I was in that wave of feminism that was like, all right, if we want to change the workplace, we got to start with our daughters and we got to start with our girls. And now here I am, I'm in my mid thirties. And if you look at metrics of gender equity and who's in power, they really haven't moved at all. You get more women graduating from college. You've got more women with higher education, master's degrees coming into the workforce. Yes. But there is a precipitous decline in progress from that point to like a decade later into a woman's career. No doubt. There's that broken pipeline to that top level. The positions of power, pay, and prestige, the positions where you have a lot of influence and can actually make change is broken, right? We're not getting there. Completely. And so the girl power was fine until I was in my mid twenties, early thirties. And everybody likes to be like, oh, well, it's moms. Moms just aren't engaged. Mom just like drop out of the workforce. And I have no kids. Um, (laughs) I mean, this is not just about motherhood penalty, which is real. Motherhood penalty is real, but again, it's not on moms. Um, And it also affects women who don't have children because regardless of whether you have kids or not, you are seen as one who probably will have kids. And so there's marginalization that occurs. Even if you make the choice to never have children, you'll always, to some degree, carry part of that bias on your shoulders by exactly. nature. Exactly. What's wrong with you that you don't have children? Right. Or, oh, you are going to have children probably because you're a woman. I think you're bringing up such an important point because part of the problem is what we feel versus what the data show. And that's one of the reasons that I love evidence and data because it distinguishes what we think and what we feel from a a single anecdotal experience to what the reality is, right? I did this study where I interviewed women from a Fortune 100 company and they all had noted that they were 
told by their organization that they were star employees who were going to be advancing, right? Mm -hmm. And they had all of these policies and diversity initiatives in place. And so they were like, yes, I have every opportunity to advance. But when you looked at their senior vice presidents, their boards of directors, the people at that top level, they weren't there. And yet they weren't able to see the disconnect Mm -hmm. uh, until it was pointed out. And so we look a lot of times at the input, right? The initiatives and the language, and that's really PR. The output, do you see in your organization, the outcomes that you're espousing? That's the real litmus test. And that is where we unequivocally know that we fall short and it's not happening. Yeah. I've been really loving to your point, the data, right? It it really just helps put this into perspective. There's just so much myth busting in the data. Absolutely. There's, There's this shared cultural narrative of why things are as bad as they are in terms of equity. And I consistently fine with every piece of research I read, like your research that you're referencing is just like that narrative is so flawed, but because it's just thing we've been telling ourselves for the last 50 years, it's very, very hard to have a conversation about what's actually happening. I remember one of the studies I was reading was about um, the same idea. The company was trying to figure out why women weren't advancing to those leadership roles. And there was just this assumption that, oh, well, moms dropped out of the workforce. And so that was the primary culprit. And then they followed up with these women who had kids and they were all in the workforce a year later. None of them had dropped out of the workforce. I mean, women work, (laughs) families work. The workforce is filled with women. They just move out of roles where the penalties are too high. You're a finance person. It's all cost benefit related, you know, what am I giving? And then what am I getting back? And when I make sacrifices, what happens for me after? If I don't see or realize the benefits of my sacrifice, I'm much less likely to continue to make that sacrifice. Exactly. There was another one I was reading about how ambition levels in women did not vary by whether they were moms or not, but varied by company uh, commitment to gender equity and diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. So there was no inherent difference between women. There was a difference in the companies and the policies. And this is all glaringly obvious. This is the stuff we're saying, but it's still like every time I talk about this, the assumptions, that cultural narrative that we've been talking about, it always comes back to the same things. Well, how do you account for women being less confident, uh, being moms, dropping out of the workforce? And I'm just like, everything you're saying is just predicated on faulty assumptions. And you're right about the way we interpret things. So even things like when you talk about ambition, if the interpretation of ambition is based on the androcentric male-centered default that ambition is shown through the ability to prioritize work above all, mm-hmm. the extreme work model, button mm-hmm. the chair, he who slays the most dragons wins. If we interpret the world and the workforce through the male androcentric lens of this is the ideal, then of course your interpretation is, well, women aren't as ambitious, Mm -hmm. but that is a false premise. And so these are the kinds of complexities that media doesn't want to detangle. They're much happier to say, you know, why don't women get ahead? They just don't want to. That's an easier story to tell. And um, unfortunately it's a story that does not serve women and is not to your point, an accurate assessment 
this is what I want to talk to you about and get your perspective on. You talked about gaslighting. Mm. And I think that empowerment sometimes is a wolf in sheep's clothing. It is the gender bias wolf in empowerment sheep's clothing. When we position complaining, or if we call out distasteful constructs that keep women back, then that message tells women that they're playing the victim when you really need to be talking about the reality. And we have a right to talk about and say, this is a world we deserve to be in. So I was wondering what you thought about that, because you talked a lot about gaslighting. And I'm like, yeah, that's so true. This victim mentality language that seems to oppose empowerment. And I think we've muddied it a bit. It's really hard. I have to be honest with you. There are a couple of points you just brought up. The first being your point about what gets amplified and empowerment advice. Everyone wants a soundbite. And what we're talking about, you and I right now, is very complex and it's very nuanced. And I'm tr- I'm trying to create a two-word phrase to make it sound biteable. But it's still tough because when somebody asks me to explain it, it's like I go on this word vomit, like, <laughs> well, this data, this data, this but data. But it is complicated, I, right? Like right. you don't want to oversimplify. I exactly. Appreciate that. Exactly. But it makes it hard. It's not as easy to as like, oh, confidence gap. Yeah. You know, it's it's a simple explanation. And this stuff is tough. It's not so explicit, but it's in everything. And that leads to the gaslighting, to your point. And then the other thing that comes out in these conversations every time I have them is, oh, somebody might accept that, yeah, ambition penalty is real and it's happening. But then they're like, so what can women do? And it is so hard because I do want to exist in a space where we're not having to just say, well, there's nothing we can do because this is the world around us. But at the same time, I'm loathe to individualize the problem. I have the same problem. You, you, the last thing when we're trying to be a part of the solution yeah. that we want to do is add to the problem. And this idea of prescribing ways yep. that women should behave differently is not something that we're comfortable with, right? Exactly. And so one of the things that I've been doing as I've been speaking to people who shared their stories of ambition penalty with me is like, what is it that would have been helpful? Or what is it you wish you knew? And the thing that struck me is one of the women I interviewed said, you know, I guess I just want to understand how to recognize these red flags and these biases earlier on so that I don't invest so much of my time and energy and ambition in a place where those things are not going to be supported. And then when I am in that space where I I just need to manage it. Well, what are the things that I need to be aware of for how these things show up and how they manifest so that I can navigate more effectively? And that's not to say that that it's not the company's responsibility not to be <laughs> sexist and flawed in the ways they are. Yeah, it is the company's responsibility. But at the same time, it's like, okay, here's the reality I'm in. So how do I recognize that and manage that in a way that it works for for me in this moment. And that's really where I'm at right now and trying to understand how to talk about this stuff. I hate that putting this at all on an individual, but at the same time, it's like, I don't want people to be feeling like they can't do anything and to feel totally disempowered. So I'm just trying to broaden the conversation. I think think it's a great point. And you know, when I say it's empathy meets pragmatism, I think that's what's missing to some degree. And why I say it so often is we can say you have to do something about it and empower yourself. 
But if you say that without the, but it's not your fault, that is still a different story. It's very reasonable and compassionate to say there's some sexist, unfair, inequitable bullshit that's happening. You should not have to deal with it, but you do. And here are some ways you can. And I don't care what anyone says. That is different. And I think we can all intuitively say that there is something about understanding that you are in a situation that you have to transcend, that it's not fair. Because then when you do, it becomes your superpower and you can acknowledge, I'm a badass right now. If I'm where you are and you're a man in this male-dominated field and I got where you are, I've had to be more badass than you to get here. And I know it. And I'm going to be damn proud of that. And I think that that's an important part of the conversation. And as you said, understanding the reality of the problem in its full complexity helps us to interrupt the self-talk and the self-limiting language. I heard you talk once about a person who kind of developed an imposter syndrome, because that is the danger, that if you own it, that it has an impact on your self-esteem and your self-worth. And if we can interrupt that, that's something. Yeah, it was so interesting that I had that interview with this woman whose job offer was rescinded when she tried to negotiate. And she was like, man, that really just made me question everything about myself, my worth, the skills I have. And uh, it just filled me with imposter syndrome, which is like this idea that I am, am not worthy of the rooms I'm trying to walk into. And I never had that before. And it was interesting she said that because right around that same time, there was that Harvard Business Review article that came out. And it really just debunked this idea that imposter syndrome is something that is inherent to women, just like the lack of confidence thing. Like we talk about these things, like they're inherent to women. This <laughs> is so like part of the genetic yeah, material. As yeah, opposed it's, to actually the opposite. it's actually right. the opposite of the literature, which shows overwhelmingly yeah. that men are much more likely to apply for a job with fewer qualifications and women are more likely to only apply if they have 100% of the qualifications. So the reality is more often than not, women are walking into the room only when they have the qualifications. Yeah. And and it's just really interesting because the imposter syndrome, this idea of questioning your skill set and everything that winds up being a response to the lived experience of, in this case, my listener who had the job offer rescinded. It's a response to a workplace that makes you question yourself, that makes you ask if you're worthwhile, you know, because they're discriminating against you and pushing back against you every five seconds. And so maybe you didn't used to have that imposter syndrome, but based on your experience, now you have it because this workplace is constantly making you question yourself. And so I think that's just a really, I don't know, scary is the right word. It's kind of crappy, right? It's yeah, kind it's of an, <laughs> an unfortunate, right? And yeah. unfair. And, you know, I have a, developed a model for advancement called the four P's advancement model, and it's identifying the problem. And that seems simple, but what is the actual problem? What yeah. is the real problem? Is it that you're not qualified or is there something else going on? Which leads to the second step, which is patterns of bias, recognizing and understanding the patterns of bias that are antecedents of why this is happening. And that's an important step because it allows us to take a step back and say, well, what's really 
something I'm doing. Because if you have a skill set deficit, by all means, sure, fix sure. it. Sure. If you're falling short of a particular area, by all means, I think we know that. But if this is something different, then we have to understand that. So we have to look at those patterns. The third thing is process, right? Interrupting the patterns. If we understand that what's happening is happening because of these outside biases and barriers, then we will tactically plan differently. Should we have to? No. Is it our fault? Absolutely not. Is it our problem? 100%. Do we want to transcend and thrive anyway? Sure we do. Do we have to then come up with different strategies and tactics now that we have the real information in hand? Of course we do. But I assure you, Stephanie, we are more likely to come up with solutions that serve us when we're looking at the real problem and the real patterns of behavior and we're not internalizing the problems. That is a very dangerous way for what is espoused about women to become the truth for it to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so it is important to have these conversations. And I think for women to hear this and say, you know what, I was just about to blame myself on that, but I'm feeling like that's not something I'm going to do now. I'm not going to do that because I know better. There are a thousand messages that are saying you need to be fixed. You are the problem. And every time I hear somebody say, if only women could do this better or that better, they have to tell themselves 10 times, I am not broken. I do not need to be fixed. This is a problem outside of me that I am unfortunately going to have to deal with, but it is not something that I need to own and I'm just not going to do that anymore. I think that's a hugely empowering mindset. I think you summed it up pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> and that isn't even really my summary. To that. That's great. Every episode, I like to wrap up with what I call a manifest statement. Mm. I like to make up words too, Stephanie. Although (laughs) yours are real words. Mine's a totally made up word. But what I think about is, okay, people who are listening to this are ambitious and they're busy. So what are some of the key takeaways for how what we're talking about can manifest for listeners? And I want to reiterate your messaging that this is not about making women feel less empowered or that it's out of our hands completely or that we shouldn't negotiate. That is not what you're saying. Of course we should. Mm -hmm. It's about eyes wide open. And you emphasize understanding the full complexity of the situation. So my manifest statement is this, forewarned is forearmed. We must understand the reality so we can have a tactical advantage when we encounter these barriers and biases. And it's about mindset, skill set, and tool set. And the mindset piece, it's not your fault, but it is your problem, allows you to take measures to mitigate these biases and barriers without owning the blame or the flaw. So we can ditch the negative self-talk and the imposter syndrome. And we begin to own our narrative internally in what we tell ourselves and externally when we're sitting in a room and somebody says, you know, when you talked about that negotiation and they rescinded the offer and there's this kind of, well, you know, obviously you care more about the money than you care about the job and this gaslighting that happens. And you say, um, I, I think you're aware, right, that there's a gender gap. So actually what I'm trying to do is my part in negotiating. I know that that's gutsy to say. But the more we can start to say that, at least you're saying, "Uh uh-uh, you're not going to own a narrative that puts me in the position where I am flawed. Yeah. The other thing that's been coming up for a lot of these folks is they're very afraid. A lot of people are afraid to share what happened to them. They're afraid to say something back. And I get it. Our industries, as big as some of these are, tech, media, whatever it is, academia, they're small. And so it winds up also being like, well, 
if I say something, then am I going to get a reputation? Will I be able to get another job? And it's scary. Like even people talked about, I wanted to go and leave a review of the company on Glassdoor, one of those sites where you can review other companies, but they're scared. They're scared to talk to me. I've been using pseudonyms. I just think that is a really powerful indicator of how bad this is, how much it still impacts people and how we have a long way to go. Yeah. And it truly speaks to the invisible data bias because we were all raised in this world that said, don't burn bridges. We've been steadfast, fed a diet of make sure you leave on a good note. And, you know, I understand why we teach people that, but the consequence of that is that we fail to have the real and true data of why people leave. And therefore the narratives have been filled in by people who don't actually understand the true lived experience of women. And I think to your point, um, you know, I talked about having the right mindset, but that's also about the tool set, right? Being prepared with data points to defend against the anticipated biased response. So you're right. It needs to be thoughtful. And you need to say, how can I, knowing that it is likely that when I go into this negotiation about salary, this is what I know is coming at me, right? I've got eyes wide open. What are my talking points? How can I be really, truly prepared so that I'm not blindsided? I'm in there with eyes wide open and I have these power responses, so to speak, that are going to help me, even if it's slightly put a dent in. And then we also have to have a skill set, right? It's mindset, skill set, tool set. And the skill set is, I know as a woman, unfairly, that I've got to be really mindful of saying this in a way that is both palatable and persuasive that will serve me. And again, damn the fact that we shouldn't have to, if we go in eyes wide open, then I think we do things a little bit differently and maybe, and I want to be optimistic here, Stephanie, maybe we do so in a way that at least helps us to have some of the narrative of our story and our truth, our reality, be a part of the bigger story. And I do think that the fact that somebody is willing to share a story, even if it is for now anonymously, and finding that they can message me and be like, this happened to me, maybe that's where it starts. Maybe it starts in a place that it's just a safe space where I'm kind of just accepting the the, the truth that it's not me, it's them. And then the next time this happens to me, then maybe I can say something in that moment. It's so raw. Like I've been having these one-to-one conversations with people and you just see it. Like there are tears, there is doubt. It is really, really crippling. And so I think I am finding that just community in and of itself, safe spaces, finding places where your ambition is going to be championed and supported. Maybe that's the step to help you then have that next step, which is bringing it up in the moment. And then like, yeah, let's build. But I think it's going to, it's going to take a minute. I think this stuff has not really been talked about before. I, I think it has in quiet corners, but, you know, making it a broader conversation, something bigger, that's what we're hoping to do. And so I appreciate you having this conversation with me. And I am so grateful for you being here. I'm so grateful for the term ambition penalty and also for empowerment cliff, because Mm -hmm. I think that is something that we need to grab a hold of and make part of the nomenclature and the discussions we're having about this because it is something that is meant to serve us that is not serving us. And so we've got to interrupt that and make sure that it does serve us. 
I'm so grateful for you being here today. I could talk to you about this forever and ever. I was wondering if there was a way for listeners who want to learn more about your work and hear more about your expertise that you can tell them where they can find you. Yeah. So I'm writing about all of these things and I have a whole series called Ambition Diaries where I do these interviews with people and their experience of exercising their ambition in the workplace, at home, in relationships, because actually the ambition penalty is everywhere. And you can find that all at ambition.bulletin.com. Perfect. And I will make sure I include that in the notes. I can't wait to check out the Ambition Diaries for myself. And again, Stephanie, I thank you for the work you're doing, the passion you have for it, uh, for being a part of the fight and for taking time out of a very busy schedule to be here today to talk to our listeners at the Advancing Women podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. For more resources, you can visit my website, www.advancingwomenpodcast.com and connect on Instagram at Advancing Women Podcast. I love getting your feedback, so please email me at drdsimone at advancingwomenpodcast.com. I just want to thank Joe Jacobs, the audio warrior who wrote the music for this podcast, and a huge thanks to Heather Harris, the creative warrior who designed the Advancing Women podcast logo, and thanks to all of you for joining me here today.